Life without God is a life filled with fear. Life with God is a life filled with peace. My next story is about a woman I'll call Mary. She was the daughter of faithful pioneer parents who had sacrificed much for the gospel. She'd been married in the temple and was the mother of ten children. She was a talented woman who taught her children how to pray, to work hard, and to love each other. She paid her tithing, and the family rode to the church together on Sunday in their wagon. Though she knew it was contrary to the word of wisdom, she developed the habit of drinking coffee and kept a coffee pot on the back of her stove. She claimed that the Lord will not keep me out of heaven for a little cup of coffee. But because of that little cup of coffee, she could not qualify for Temple Recommend. And neither could those of her children who drank coffee with her. She lived to a good old age, and she did eventually qualify to re-enter and serve in the Temple. But only one of her ten children had a worthy Temple marriage and a great number of her posterity, which is now in its fifth generation, live outside of the blessings of the restored gospel she believed in and her forefathers sacrificed so much for. That repentance isn't optional. We're commanded to repent. The Savior taught that unless we repent and become as a little child, we can in no wise inherit the kingdom of God. Life without God is a life filled with fear. We must not let one little cup of coffee filled with fear, one bad habit with fear, one bad choice, one wrong decision derail us for a lifetime. Life without God is a life filled with fear. Life with God is a life filled with <laughs> This is Infants on Thrones. Philosophies of men mingled with humans. We are the core. Look for the good in everything. Look for the people who will set your soul free. It always seems impossible until it's done. Look for the good in everyone. Welcome back to Infants on Thrones. I'm Elder Dow Glenn Ostland II of the first and only quorum of the infantry. And this is episode 687, Infant General Conference, October 2020, Session 1. And you just heard President Russell M. Nelson provide an excellent litmus test. You all know what a litmus test is, right? It's something that can prove something else. So what is the proof proposed by the prophet and president behind the pulpit? If there is fear in your life, there is no God in your life. Hmm. So... Sister Coffee Story Lady, why so weepy? Wake up. Fear not. You believe in God, don't you? You believe that God loves you and that he restored truth on the earth in these last days for the salvation of all his children, don't you? Is that fear I hear in your message? What gives? Maybe you need a little taste of the gospel, infant style. 
We all grow from a place of infancy towards a place of maturity, don't we? Let's hope so. So today we're going back in time to the very first Infant General Conference episode from April 2015. But first, let's quickly resurrect our beloved Boyd K. Packer to share some words of wisdom for our fearful Sister Coffee Story Lady. Thank you, Elizaga Austin. I have a story I'd like to read. <coughs> if you give a moose a muffin... Wait, hang on, no. If you give a Mormon lady a mocha latte, she'll want some children to drink it with. So she'll give birth to a bunch of kids and drink her coffee with each of them. When they finish drinking, they'll want another, and another, and another. So she'll make more, and they will drink it. Each day, every day, until they die. <coughs> and once they die, they will go to heaven. And when they get to the gates of heaven, they will probably be stopped by some sentinels or something. And those sentinels will stop them and ask, What is wanted? And they won't know what to say. They will not be able to give the secret password, or show the secret signs, or shake the secret handshake. Oh, did I say secret? Sorry, I, I mean sacred. So they won't get into heaven. And they won't have the blessings promised to them as long as they didn't do anything stupid to lose them like drink coffee, or be gay, or make up any kind of story that separates you, even if only in your own mind, from God, however you imagine God to be. Because the obvious truth is that you exist, and existence itself is a miracle. The obvious truth is that you have been created, and the universe itself is what created you through long, miraculous, natural means. The same natural means that formed your DNA, that give you your genetic predispositions, that gives you a brain that you use to make choices, that gives you oxygen to breathe and life to live. Imagine those natural means to be your God, your creator, the thing that you are a literal expression of. Divinity made flesh. And stop being afraid of things you have no real way of knowing. That is you allowing fear to dominate your life. <coughs> you are doing it, not God. Because why would our Heavenly Father do that to anyone? I'm going back to take my dirt nap now. Run this program again whenever you need it. Packer out. My dear brothers and sisters... Welcome out to a general conference again. 
I want to thank everyone and acknowledge everyone. And even though this is pretty much the 185th year in a row we've done this, let me just set out our expectations because I'm conducting today and that's what men do who conduct. So we'll start off with President Uchtdorf as he reads in the sustaining thing we do, after which we'll hear some hymns mingled with a bunch of talks from some of your favorite people in the world, after which we'll also hear from our beloved prophet, who is still with us and still just as beloved as ever, after which we will have a closing song and a closing prayer, after which you should all leave this conference center peacefully and quietly, after which you will make your way to your cars and unlock the doors and drive home on the roads safely, after which, well, I could go on like this all day, but you already know the routine, so let's get to it. It is proposed that we sustained Thomas Spencer Monson as prophet, seer, and revelator, and president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Henry Benyon Eyring as first counselor, and Dieter Friedrich Uchtdorf as second counselor in the first presidency. Those in favor may manifest it. Those opposed, if any, may manifest it. No. The note has been noted. Uh, I mean, the vote has been voted. Verdammt! I mean, the vote has been noted. It has been proposed that we sustain Boyd Kennedy. Come on, guys. Take it up with your stake president. I'd like to continue. No. Lost in Quatch! Ja! No. Ja! No. Ja! Ivan, why? You took a breath. Your crap has been noted. We would like to continue with We thank thee, O God, for a prophet. Let's sing it with enthusiasm. Meine Leute! We thank thee, O God, for a prophet. This chicken soup with them for the soul, and we call Tom. We sustain him while stupid and pathetic people reject him. Cause we know that that makes us the bomb. We doubt not his acumen or lucidity or his love for those widows now past. And it warms our hearts to know that those who oppose his great calling shall surely be smitten at last. And those who reject 
His trite wisdom shall never such happiness know. Cause we love being better than them. The people who reject the prophet, or at least the ones that don't even have one like we do. Because God loves us enough to give us a prophet And let everybody else suffer In ignorance and sin Stupid them Unless they listen and accept our great message of love My dear brothers and sisters It was my great privilege recently to attend a gathering of religious leaders about marriage and family. There were representatives from many different faiths that attended, but I was amazed by how much we, a group of high-ranking leaders of conservative religions, happened to agree about how traditional traditional marriage should be. Witnessing this was a marvelous work and a wonder. In talking about traditional marriage, you may wonder about which aspect of traditional marriage we decided to focus on. In other words, what makes traditional marriage traditional? Is it the tradition to marry for love rather than the earlier non-traditional tradition of marrying for political or economic reasons? Or is it the tradition of promising lifelong fidelity to one another? Or is it the tradition of pledging to share one's life with another through thick and thin and support one's children or dependents? Well, no. While all those things are good, those things aren't the things that make a marriage traditional. No, the key element of marriage is something shown in the story of the first two humans ever, Adam and Eve whom our dear Elder Holland, who is not a dodo and went to a pretty good school, has already told us were definitely literally real people and definitely fell from a really real Garden of Eden, despite how empirically improbable that may sound. You see, what makes a traditional marriage so traditional is the physical anatomy of the people in it, namely the number of penises and vaginas. As God's mouthpiece on earth... It is our solemn duty to affirm that a traditional marriage contains one penis and one vagina. Well, except for very special occasions when the Lord has seen fit to allow marriages to have one penis and more than one vagina, as he did with Abraham and the early saints, but this only happens in extreme circumstances. However, in these troubled times there are those who argue that a marriage can have two penises, Or, I'm told, two vaginas with no penis at all, which baffles me to no end. But in that religious summit we attended, we bore powerful testimony that traditional marriage must have one, but sometimes more, vaginas, and one, and only one, penis. You may wonder why we have decided to reduce the definition of traditional marriage to this one simplistic feature— since the thing that makes a marriage and family so influential in people's lives isn't so much the anatomy of the adherents, but the network of unconditional love, support, and inclusion that it provides. Indeed, you might think that if we were truly concerned with promoting the benefits of marriage and family, we would embrace all forms of marriage as traditional, so long as it meets the criteria of consent, love, and fidelity that we expect. 
but we must stand against such perversions of traditional marriage. In the face of this argument, we declare to the world that the balance of penises and vaginas in any given marriage is sanctioned by God and cannot be changed. And anyone whose arrangement skews this balance can only attain a counterfeit of the emotional and sociological benefits of marriage and family. Those who fight against this holy balance have powerful tools in the media and the internet to make it seem like there are a lot of them. However, I am pleased to say that these people who argue for the acceptance of marriages with too many penises or not enough penises are actually in the minority. And by pointing that out, I am implying that their opinions are, for some reason, less important. Now, that may seem like a strange position to take, since the minority status of our own members was exploited for persecution less than 200 years ago. But we should all remember that mob rule really isn't so bad if you're part of the mob. Now, since such a diverse crowd of conservative religious leaders were able to reach such a consensus about the correct number of penises and vaginas in a traditional marriage, you may wonder, what makes us so special? How can I hold on to that sense of superiority and one true churchedness that I've grown to rely on? But don't worry. Even though these good people could recognize real traditional marriage, they still don't have the eternal families like us. Yes, rest assured that through our holy temples, we don't have to be separated from our families in heaven. And sure, that might seem like solving a problem we created in the first place, since most Christians believe they'll be with their families in heaven anyway. But we can take comfort in the fact that our penile and vaginally balanced marriages will last into the eternities, while theirs dissolve with death. In the name of heteronormativity, amen. Eight years ago, I stood before you and told you how God's refining process can turn each of us spiritually from a cucumber to a pickle. What I forgot to tell you was that God relishes these spiritual transformations. It comes from great diligence, which is pure and delightsome in the eyes of our Lord. And, Gherkin Nabbit, we should all be like pickles. And I wasn't kidding. But there are more culinary metaphors to be curried from the Bednar Year Supply Shelter. And today, I want to talk about the importance of pie. Cherry pie. Apple pie. Peach pie. Pecan pie. Peanut butter pie. Because pie is pure and delightsome. But all too many little red hens among us simply want to eat the pie and take no thought into proper, precise pie preparation. It all begins with the dough, kneading the knots from the dough through constant and vigilant attention 
much like removing the hardened blots of sin from our lives each and every day. Only then can one achieve a flaky golden crust baked at 425 degrees for 65 to 70 minutes in the refiner's fire of God's ever-burning ovenly love. And for the more traditional among us, like my dear grandmother, who lived such an exemplary life of service and self-sacrifice and even more service, you may want a slice of cheese atop your pie. I know for the younger generation that sounds a little weird, but trust me, it's good. And there is no better cheese than that that comes directly to us from the Holy Land. Yea, verily, even the cheeses of Nazareth. Yes, that's right. I'll say it again for those tom-sighing eye-rollers out there. Cheeses of Nazareth. So basically what I'm telling you today is about pie and the need for you in your daily lives among your fellow men to be crust-like, to live a crust-like life, presenting a crust-like example to your fellow men. Yea, verily, crust-like life unto the cheeses of Nazareth, because it is Fast Sunday, after all. And man, I'm hungry. In the name of everlasting Gouda. Amen. Subjects for general conference talks are assigned, not by mortal authority, but by the impressions of the Spirit. Many subjects would address the mortal concerns we all share. Helpful tips for how to live a more fulfilling life here and now. But instead, I would like to address ambiguous and arbitrary ways that you as saints are simply not good enough for the next life. Jesus, who I can neither confirm nor deny I talk with frequently, he usually inspires his modern servants, and when I say servants, I'm just humbly referring to myself, to speak about what you, the members, 
must do to reform your personal lives to prepare you to return to our heavenly home. This is fantastic because I enjoy giving condescending talks that focus on trite ways that I and Jesus are both disappointed in you. My message today concerns those of us who have committed to be followers of Christ. What do we do with the Savior's teachings as we live our lives? I'd like to start by throwing new converts under the bus. Jesus describes those who, when they have heard the word, immediately receive it with gladness, but because they have no root in themselves, when affliction or persecution ariseth for the word's sake, immediately they are offended. What causes hearers to have no root in themselves? This is the circumstance of new members who are merely converted to the missionaries or to the many attractive characteristics of the church, or to the many great fruits of church membership. Not being rooted in the word, they can be scorched and wither away when opposition arises. But even those raised in the church, long-term members, can slip into a condition where they have no root in themselves. I have known some of these members without firm and lasting conversion to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So now that I have explained just how awful most of you are, or can be, let me explain how the church is your solution. Spiritual food is necessary for spiritual survival, especially in a world that is moving away from belief in God and the absolutes of right and wrong. In an age dominated by the internet, which magnifies messages that menace faith, we must increase our exposure to spiritual truth in order to strengthen our faith and stay rooted in the gospel. Young people, if that teaching seems too general, here is a specific example. If the emblems of the sacrament are being passed and you are texting or whispering or playing video games or doing anything else to deny yourself essential spiritual food, you are severing your spiritual roots and moving yourself towards stony ground. And that applies to adults also. You heard correctly. Of all the things that Jesus would inspire me to tell you, I felt that the most important message for you today was to chastise you for benign activities you may or may not be doing during a specific 10 minutes of church, which some might say, surprisingly, sort of like drinking coffee, can potentially affect which degree of heaven you live in for all of eternity. If you just sit still and do nothing bad during the sacrament, think of it like an adult timeout, I'm pretty sure you'll just forget anything you read on the internet. Another potential destroyer of spiritual roots, accelerated by current technology that I don't understand, is the keyhole view of the gospel or the church. This limited view focuses on a particular doctrine or practice or perceived deficiency in a leader and ignores the grand panorama of the gospel plan and the personal and communal fruits of its harvest. Put another way, 
the Internet may provide you a means to learn about oh so many things wrong with the church, but you undoubtedly will pick your favorite pet issue and let that cloud your judgment of just how fucked up the church really is in 27 other ways. This keyhole view of the gospel really robs you of the broader view of the majestic work of God. Let me now speak of the deceitfulness of riches. Wherever we are in our spiritual journey, whatever our state of conversion, we are all tempted by this. When attitudes or priorities are fixed on the acquisition, use, or possession of property, we call that materialism. Unless the church does it, then we call that building up the kingdom of God here on the earth today, which is totally fine and may involve shopping malls. The root of all evil is not money, but the love of money. The church has lots of money, but we swear we don't love it. You members, on the other hand, are the worst, especially you poor members. You don't even really have money, you probably love it, and you're barely able to pay your tithing. But pay your tithing. Also, I have one more trite couplet on this subject. The possession of wealth or significant income is not a mark of heavenly favor, and their absence is not evidence of heavenly disfavor. Put another way, shit happens, and God's not involved. This is totally true as I say it right now, but please forget about it the next time you hear a conference talk with an uplifting story about God blessing someone materially. Pretty much any tithing-based story. You see, God doesn't bless people materially, except for when he does so that apostles can have good stories. The Book of Mormon tells of a time when the Church of God began to fail in its progress, because, quote, the people of the Church began to set their hearts upon riches and upon the vain things of the world, end quote. Whoever has an abundance of material things is in jeopardy of being spiritually sedated by riches and other things of the world. It's important to note that the scriptures here were talking about people, not corporations or churches who aren't people. Uh, at least not for this case. Anyway, the point is, churches, or at least our church, isn't in jeopardy of being spiritually sedated by riches like you members or other churches or pretty much anyone or any entity except ours because we say so. Or, I mean, because Jesus says so. Now let me conclude by listing some more ambiguous ways you're doing it wrong. I think it's best if I say that again, but this time with my flowery language. Savoring the things of men means putting the cares of this world ahead of the things of God in our actions, our priorities, and our thinking. We surrender to the pleasures of this life when we are addicted. Addicted to what, you might ask? It doesn't matter. I just wanted to say the word addicted at least once because now you're thinking of alcohol, porn, masturbation, or maybe all three at the same time. It's much easier for me to be nonspecific with my chastisements 
because it saves time and casts a wider net. But let me continue with my list now that you understand. We surrender to the pleasures of this life when we are addicted, when we are beguiled by trivial distractions which draw us away from things of eternal importance, and when we have an entitlement mentality which impairs the personal growth necessary to qualify us for our eternal destiny. Now that I have finished my list of ambiguous but clearly guilt-ridden ways you all suck, let me bring it home by using Jesus as my wingman to not so subtly explain how your priorities and hearts should be fixed on me and the other leaders of his church. The Savior's warning against having the cares of this world choke out the word of God in our lives surely challenges us to keep our priorities fixed, our hearts set on the commandments of God and the leadership of his church. That being said, no good apostolic talk would end without another laundry list of boring and repetitive activities you already know you should be doing to be a good person. We must seek to be firmly rooted and converted to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We achieve this conversion by praying, by scriptures reading, by serving, and by regularly partaking of the sacrament to always have his spirit to be with us. I testify of the truth of these things, and I testify of our Savior, Jesus Christ, my buddy and friend, whose teachings are super useful when reconstructed to make the points I already wanted to make. In the name of Jesus H. Christ, amen. Said president, just read from the prompter, and if you get nervous, just picture everyone in the congregation in their garments. Many years ago, who can remember just when I was a student somewhere studying something, I'm pretty sure. And I was at that age when a young man is supposed to be interested in a young woman and take her into the temple of our Lord through all uh, time and eternity. I wasn't sure how to do it. Would I actually need to have human feelings and a sense of passion? But I remember hearing that all you really need to make a marriage work is a cookie and a kiss. And I thought that was pretty good because who doesn't like cookies? So I found a girl I married her and that began the greatest and most challenging adventure of my life. Now once upon a time there were a group of gods way up above us in the sky and they the gods came to this earth and they formed man and woman and man and woman did the gods they formed do forming man and woman gods do today in that space and the gods blessed them 
that they would multiply and replenish the earth. And they made it pleasurable, or at least tolerable, for the most faithful in order to continue life on this earth. Adam and his sons and daughters. And look, this is really hard for me, you guys, so let me just get to the point. The commandment to multiply and replenish the earth has never, never, never been rescinded. Ever. The power of procreation is, in itself, meant to give fullness of joy and to be the very plan of happiness itself. So look, everyone. What I'm trying to say is, when a daddy really loves a mommy every once in a while to keep the mommy happy with tremendous focus and concentration and sense of will the daddy is able to to know her and know her at least long enough to create new life and then he can take a shower and fall asleep because it is a commandment after all and the Lord does not give a commandment unto the children of men, save he shall prepare a way for that commandment to be undertaken, no matter how challenging, even if it's really, really gross. So if it's a struggle for any of you men to redirect your desire to mate in mankind, wait, did I just say that out loud? The constant, strong, persistent, compelling physical desire to mate in mankind. <laughs> Excuse me for a minute. Then <sighs> begin with, with romance. You know, customs vary. Every storybook, you know, feelings of excitement and anticipation. Handsome and dashing prince, charming, joyful, rapture, spring forth from the fountain of life. So just remember that the righteous exercise of this power will bring us closer to our Father in heaven. That's what I always thought of to help me get through it. That glorified, masculine, manly man in the sky. In fact, I'm getting a little aroused right now just thinking about him. Some of my beloved brethren, that you may also find a way, somehow, to fulfill this great commandment and gain righteous arousal in your own lives, is my firm prayer. In the name of our masculine, manly Savior, with his powerful broad shoulders and magnificent beard and such strong, loving eyes. Don't be gay. Amen.
and accept almost everyone else. As long as they're worthy of your love and acceptance and kindness, then you can love almost like Good evening, brethren. It is an honor to speak to you this priesthood session. As you know, it is my role to play the sweet chaser, as it were, to wash away the bitter taste of a packer talk. This serves a most useful function, as it allows us as an institution to keep the hard party line but gives the more liberal parts of our membership something they can relate to, and the more conservative believers something to swoon over as they look into my piercing but warm eyes and deliver a flowery message with my famous disarming charm and handsomeness. But I would like to start my talk with a story of Grigory Potemkin. According to the story, Grigory Potemkin erected fake settlements along the banks of the Dnieper River in order to fool Empress Catherine II during her journey to the Crimea in 1787. Some modern historians claim the original story is exaggerated. However, the phrase is now used typically in politics and economics, to describe any construction, literal or figurative, built solely to deceive others into thinking that some situation is better than it really is. Now, it is only natural to want to put our best foot forward, to look and smell our best, or hide the dirty dishes when the home teachers come. But there is a fine line between that and outright deception. Why is there this tendency for priesthood holders to hide our sins from others? To engage in this pharisaic hypocrisy of showing one face at church while in secret engaging in sins he knows are wrong. I'm sure many could, I suppose accuse the church of perhaps creating a Potemkin version of whitewash history to its general membership systematically and for many, many decades. But that issue has been put to rest once and for all. We released all those essays, didn't we? (laughs) What more could one ask for? And of course, the church is not held to the same accountability we hold you to. Do as we say, not as we do as an institution. After all, institutions are not people. That is a ridiculous notion, of course. But I digress. There can also be this Potemkin effect when it comes to our church callings. A stake president was once conducting a meeting with the top leadership of the stake to determine their goals. Once the goals were determined and agreed upon, 
the state president was troubled by the coldness of the goals, which were all in the form of numbers and percentages. He felt these statistical goals were not a good reflection on the welfare and health of his stake. He shifted the discussion to have the leadership of the stake change their focus on more personal issues, like are the naked being clothed? Are the hungry being fed? Are the doubters being reassured? Are the widows being cared for? Are the sick who are too poor for medical insurance being tended to? Are the kittens being rescued from the trees? If Jesus was to see the church today, well, he does. Trust me, I can testify. He could totally see us now. But as a thought experiment, if Jesus could see us now, he would not be concerned with the numbers. He would be concerned with whether or not the least of these your brethren that are in your stewardship are being cared for. This is true religion, brethren. Of course, even though they're not important, please still turn in all your reports, completed and on time. It's really the only way we know how to run this institution. We go to church not to show this Potemkin face. We go to church because, like vehicles, we are all in need of maintenance or repair of our eternal souls. Let us all work together to tune each other up every week, or if necessary, do a complete overhaul of our transmissions or engines. This is my solemn and humble prayer. As a super special and incredibly handsome and tan witness of Jesus Christ, that we will work together in faith, kindness, honesty, and love to buoy each other up to the celestial kingdom. In the name of double talk, duplicity, and an unapologetic institutional hypocrisy. Amen. To the man who's so big and important We can only hope to be as big and important as him He did no wrong cause he was big and important Big and important is what we all should be Let's praise the man and let's hero worship better than Batman. Cause this guy was so real, sure people killed once because they were stupid. Since they killed him once, they sure can kill him again. Brothers and sisters, how wonderful it is to stand before you this day and to speak to you with a bounce in my step, in my voice, to say to all of you out there who think I'm just some propped-up corpse of a guy, like the corpse of a guy 
from Weekend at Bernie's to say to those of you who may think that in your face. I remember a time in my youth at the tender age of 71. I don't really have a follow-up for that. I was just hoping to get a laugh. Because, yeah, I'm still just as witty as ever and lucid and full of divine wisdom as ever I ever was ever before. That's really all I wanted to say. And, oh yes, temples. If you haven't heard already, they're pretty great. They're a tremendous blessing and a proof that God is with us. Because those are some pretty fancy buildings. We couldn't build them without him or without you. And tithing, don't forget that, because the church is true. I hope I'm not forgetting anything. Amen. Have I done any good in the world today? Any problems I've helped realize? Have I paid debtors bookies, brought neighbors some cookies, in hopes they'd soon be baptized? Has anyone's burden been lighter today? Because I put their name in the temple prayer roll. Has the world's many addicted been less world afflicted? When they needed an eternal perspective to explain away their suffering, were they told? Then wake up and do something more than pretend that the temple work has any real impact at all. There are people around you who need actual help. Real people in this life right now. Our most dear, gracious, kind, not from the Old Testament, Heavenly Father, we thank Thee, O anthropomorphic Heavenly Father, for being white and delightsome, just like us, but the all-knowing, perfect version of us, with your mysterious ways of dealing with bigotry, sexism, racism, and homophobia. We thank Thee for having these mysterious ways that explain so much and give us hope that we can one day return to live with you and repeat these mysterious ways for eternities to come. We thank thee for providing us with prophets in these latter days, prophets like the selfless Joseph Smith, the humble Brigham Young, all the way to our living and lucid enough prophet today, Thomas Spencer Monson. We bear witness that as we apply the atonement into our lives and we feel the redeeming love 
of Jesus and God, that we will find within us a deeper, more appreciative understanding of that love. And we will begin to develop this love and wish to express this love to many other people so that they too can feel this love. A love so amazing that we've used the word love five times in a self-referential way to remind us that there's no need to define what we mean by love. We testify of the resurrection. We testify that there are people on the other side of the veil, anxiously awaiting us to do their work in the temples. And the sacredness of the temples and the work we do there within heretofore unavailable to those aforementioned anxiously awaiting people. We ask thee, O gracious and omnipresent Heavenly Father, to protect our families from paper cuts and cancer. But if it be thy will, know that our faith is strong and we are ready to face paper cuts and cancer. We ask thee also to forgive us when we ask for something out of weakness, but then cancel out the need for that ask by acknowledging that whatever thy decision, that's fine too. This is our humble testimony and prayer, and we bear witness of it in the eternally sacred and powerful meek and mighty name of Jesus F. Christ. Amen. I've got a lovely batch of coconut. There they are standing in a row. Big one, small one, some as big as your head. Give them a twist, a flick of the wrist, that's what the showman said. I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. Hi, this is Hillary, Matt Ryan, Carol, Ashley, and I like to play bingo online while listening to Infants on Thrones. You can comment on this episode on the website, infantsonthrones.com. And if you really like what you hear, give the quorum a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes. I did. I did. I did. Anyone for the closing prayer? Sing and roller bowl a ball a penny up here. Thank you for listening to Infants on Thrones.